Welcome to podcast number 68 for Thanks for Your Service. Our focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net and you can also email us at info at thanksforyourservice.net. Christmas time is nearly upon us and if you're looking for an idea for a present, keep listening. My exposure to World War II prisoners of war was shaped by movies such as The Great Escape and The Wooden Horse. Kristen Alexander joins us to talk about her latest book titled Kriegies, the Australian Airmen of Stalag Luft III. It's a fascinating insight into life in captivity of Australian POWs. Let's find out more. Kristen, we last spoke to you, I think it was May 2022, about um, yeah. uh, the men of, was it Stalag? The Stalag Luft Three, yes. Luft Three, yeah. And now you've gone on to write a new book. My mm-hmm. experience with prisoners of war and captivity in World War Two, unfortunately, comes from The Great Escape, mm. Hogan's Heroes and The Wooden Horse. But you've now written, written a book called The Kriegies, The Australian Airmen of Stalag Luft Three. Let's start off, what is a Kriegie? A Kriegie is a prisoner of war. It's actually the nickname that the, um, the, the prisoners the Air Force prisoners came up with. And it's a contraction of Kriegsgefangener, which literally means war prisoner. Um, forgive my pronunciation, German speakers. Um, but, but that's such a, a handful. And, and you know people just have a tendency to, to shorten things. So Kriegy it became. But it was also sort of an empowering thing because they focus, Kriegy focuses on the first word, war. So for them, it reinforced the fact that they considered themselves to still be on duty even though they were behind barbed wire. They still considered themselves Air Force men. Your book is based on the captivity of the Australian Airmen at Starlag Luft Three. Can you give us a, a bit of a background about the actual camp itself? Okay, it was um, built almost as a showcase camp by the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force. Um, they had their first camp was built at Bath up in Western Pomerania, but it wasn't the best facility. They certainly didn't expect to capture so many men. There were a lot of escapes from it. So they wanted to build the ultimate prisoner of war camp that was going to be escape proof, that would be large enough to hold thousands of prisoners in a space that again could accommodate expansion so they settled on um a location in in lower silesia which is now poland um close to the the town of sargon again forgive my pronunciation and it had it was a great location from their perspective because it had sandy soil, which meant it would have been very difficult to successfully dig tunnels. It was very close to um, the Sudeten mountain range, so any would-be escapers had to contend with um, mountains. It was bordered by forest area. It was, it was over 600 kilometres away from Switzerland, which was the closest neutral country, um, hundreds of kilometres from France, any other borders. Um, it was reasonably close to um, 
a, a busy rail centre there at the junction of six railways. But it was, you know, they, they heavily guarded it. It would have been, they assumed, difficult to even get to the, the rail station. They were well experienced in escape attempts so that they could keep keep alert. So, so yeah, they, they thought that Stalag Luft III was the, the be-all be and end-all as far as the prison facilities were concerned. And Stalag Luft III is also famous Mm. Something else, that being the, the the great escape, the book and the and the film, and obviously the the actual escape itself. Oh yes, uh, it, it, it it's it's probably Stalag Luft Three and Kolditz Castle are probably the two most renowned German prisoner of war facilities, and certainly Stalag Luft Three gained a huge reputation as an escaping camp because it it two very successful escapes well not uh, depends on your definition of successful but two notorious escapes were launched the first in october 1943 was um what was later known as the the wooden horse escape wooden horse effort um, and that was also made into a book and a, and a film but the the big one because it was so ambitious was what later became known as the great escape in march 1944 where 76 men got out, three made it home to England, but 50 were killed. And it's probably that reason that the fact that 50 airmen were shot as part of the reprisals that Stalag Luft III has um, that notoriety. And of course, five Australians were killed in the Great Escape. Now, your book obviously focuses on the life in captivity by the Australian mm -hmm. airmen and, and the experiences of prisoners of war. But what training or preparation did they go for mm -hmm. in, 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 in terms of preparing uh, if, if they were captured prisoner? Um, they, most of them, and obviously I couldn't pin it down for everyone, so we're assuming that generally speaking, they attended... Um, lectures either at their air force station um, on their squadron they um, many of them viewed a training film about what to do if they were captured and interrogated um, they had lectures from um, mi9 and airmen who had escaped either for in the great war but oh and and some some people, if, if they were going on, on an, an important operation that was risky, they, they may have had um, sort of pre-operation lectures. I'm just researching more closely Jimmy Katanar, who was one of the Australians killed after the Great Escape, and he was captured en route to um, an operation in Russia. But in the weeks beforehand, all of 455 Squadron and 144 Squadron who were going on this operation, they all attended lectures on evasion and escape and, and preparation for what they should do if they if they had to force land, for instance, destroy any papers, um, wreck the aircraft if they could. So there was, there was a certain amount of preparation, but just because you viewed a training film doesn't necessarily mean that you've absorbed it. I mean, the, as with anything, there's that element of, oh, it's not going to happen to me. And then if it does, and and um, I think it was Bruce Lumsden, one of, one of the airmen I followed in the book, said that it 
it did not prepare them for the the actual interrogation that they had to go through um they they had no conception really of what the german interrogators would do to them or the, or the sorts of um discomforts that they would encounter or in some cases outright torture sort of heating the rooms to you know hideous temperatures um then take turning off the heaters totally continually harping or even just sort of the 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 the, the soft selling of, of questions um the wheedling it, it it was very difficult and and it was also an emotional experience in that one moment they're flying on operations or in the middle of battle the next minute they're down they could be wounded um still in shock and their air force career is over so quite often you're not thinking clearly anyway yeah there was preparation but it didn't really um set up a lot of men to be able to handle it easily and also some of them spent years as, as prisoners of, of, of war and yeah. your your book gives an amazing insight into into the life into the experiences of these airmen mm -hmm. uh, at Starlight Luft three uh, and and your book focuses on themes and on different chapters. Can you yeah. just give us an overview of some of them? Or which ones you you looked at? Okay. Um, one of the things I was interested in doing was finding out what the experience meant to the men. Um, I wanted to know how they coped with captivity and how they managed it. So what what were the things that helped them? Um, and and some of those things were, um, for instance, Air Force Brotherhood. The, the concept that they belonged to us, uh, an important service organisation. They had developed very close ties as airmen, um, tapping into that um, you know, pre-existing brotherhood of the air concept. Um, and the fact that the Air Force or squadrons very much were, and particularly bomber crew, were very much a de facto family. So that concept of family, I, I talked about brotherhood, the, the things that they did to help manage captivity, which um, I call Kriegi ingenuity, um, they had to learn how to cook, they had to learn how to fend for themselves, adopt fe typically female roles, um, you know, cleaning up after their rooms, as I said, cooking, taking pride in the recipes that they developed based on their limited rations. But also, too, they, um, and for us, you know the 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 Australian bushman is a really great example that we we know that they can you know rig up a, a bush shower and you know tinker about and you know make things so so they made their utensils they you know sort of like jugs saucepans they 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 made little stoves that they could cook more easily on the real ingenuity which tapped into their innate masculinity um, but also made life more comfortable. One of the the biggest things for prisoners of war was the fact that they, they feared that they were going to be forgotten by their family and also the their squadrons. So that was a great fear. So I, I, I talk about what they did to ensure that they weren't forgotten and the ties that they tried tried to maintain with their loved ones through through letters, through still trying to maintain a place in their lives. And, and of course, I, I focus on the, the women folk, the family, how they coped and what they did to ensure that their relationships continued. Mm -hmm. I talk about their romantic lives, 
how men coped with the absence of sex in captivity. But perhaps the, the most significant one themes were the escape theme, the duty to escape, um, why they felt obliged to join the escape organisation, the motivation to escape, whether or not they could escape and you know the strains that that placed on them. Um, and then finally, all of the strains of captivity, um, the psychological distress that captivity created, how they tried to manage that, what happened if they couldn't manage it, um, barbed wire, suicide. But again, the theme in that section really is the abiding brotherhood, sense of brotherhood that they felt. Not everyone could cope easily. They were, men were assailed by depression at various times. They helped each other. They did their best to keep themselves personally strong, but also the group. And, and that's one of the, I guess, the overarching themes too, is that captivity wasn't an individual experience. It was a collective experience. Is there one Kriegi that stands out to you in, when you when you wrote this book? Oh, that, that is really one of the hardest questions because I'm a biographer at heart. And when I study a person and, and delve into his or her life, um, I become, I guess, emotionally involved. And, and in, in the majority of cases, it's he, um, at airmen. I, they, they absorb me totally. And then I'll move on to the next one. And again, I'm totally absorbed. But, but some, some people really do stand out. Um, one, Albert Hake, uh, one of the Australians killed in The Great Escape, his relationship with his wife, Nola, and it's because I read his letters, so I, I, I gained a real sense of his life and the depression that he suffered in captivity. I met with his extended family, so I discovered how captivity affected them and how the legacy of captivity um, still lingers. Um, one, one man I absolutely loved because he was just so cheery and also devoted so much of his life and time to helping others was Charles Lark. He, he was a scout as a boy and he, he really believed in the tenets of, of scout law in that, you know, you help, um, you do what you can. And even though he suffered um, you know, quite distressing wounds and was eventually repatriated home, medically repatriated, and later on, um, experienced some psychological disturbance. He he took on the duty of contacting family members when he got back to Australia to let them know how their loved one was faring. The Air Force casualty section set him up with with um, you know stationery and admin support, and he wrote to people and they wrote to him. He he wrote to the Prisoner of War Association letter to let. Um, newsletter to let people know how they were going so yeah th th there were lots of them as I said I'm, I'm digging a little bit more into Jimmy Katana's life and and flying career and which I didn't do while writing the book but he he was one he was probably the one that got me started on it you know what happened to him after he he crashed and you know, I, I, I got to read some of his letters um, and a sense of understanding, but just learning and researching his death um, and the deaths of the Australian Great Escapers. And I do go into 
some graphic and, and for me, terrible detail about how they were treated before their deaths and after their deaths. And, and you know, someone like him, 22 when he's killed, it, 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 it has affected me. So not, not in the positive way as, say, Charles Lark, um, whose experience or what he did is, is heartwarming, but, yeah, more, more distressing and upsetting. And what inspired you to write the book? Um, sort of an accident. <laughs> as, as I said, um, I, I, Jimmy was the starting point. I encountered him when I was writing my biography of Jack Davenport. Um, Jack was Jimmy's deputy flight commander. And when Jimmy and his crew was lost en route to the Russian operation, Jack stepped into his boots. And I thought, but, well, what happened to Jimmy? And, you know, it was a paragraph in the book. They were captured. Jimmy was killed. Um, what happened to the other crew members? But, you know, it's always in the back of your mind. And one of my contacts was um, Alan Rigetti. And I emailed him for years. And he was in Starlight Luft 3. He was, and, and occasionally, you know, we'd talk about Starlight Luft 3 or he'd remember something about Jimmy. And it all you know, mulling around in the back of the brain. And just as I was coming to the end of writing Australia's Hue and the Battle of Britain, you know, back of the brain is starting to think, what am I going to do next? And I thought, and, I, and I, it coincided with one of the anniversaries of The Great Escape. So I thought, why don't I look at the Australians in The Great Escape? Mm. Um, and I started, you know, noodling around and, some stories came to me. I made contact with Albert Haight's family, so I had his collection. Um, but for various reasons, that didn't work out. So I thought, well, what about looking at the broader Australian experience in Stalag Luft Three? And and again, I, I actually plunged into that. I was really keen on doing that until I realised I don't have the the skills to do something so broad based. Um, it was just like. A squadron history in a sense and I never thought that I could write something like that it just wasn't me because as I said I'm a biographer at heart um, I'm interested in the individual stories but here it you have to look broader and I was whinging to a friend one day and he said well have you ever considered a PhD uh, that will teach you the skills and I thought oh okay so I did a PhD on Stalag Luft III coping in captivity essentially um, and, you know, the emotional responses to it. And so then I had the skills, so then I wrote the book. But it's a process that's taken 10 years. Yeah, <laughs> From goodness. the original idea to um, the fact that you've got a book in your hand. Wow. Are, are, are any of the Kriegis still alive today? There may be one or two Australians. Um, at the time that I wrote, the published the book, I think there were about five, but I weren't in contact with them. So if, if we look at 1920 as about the average age, if anyone is still, you know, average birth year, if anyone is still alive, um, they would be very old. But mm. I, was, I was very privileged during the, um, the research, doing the research for the PhD um, to be in contact with a small handful of former Stalag Luft three men and one in particular, Alec Arnell, we, we conducted a series of about 10 interviews, um, very reflective interviews, absolutely wonderful. I spoke to Cy Borsch 
up in Brisbane. He showed me his his um, wartime logbook. Um, I, I was just so privileged to to gain that personal insight. I mm. probably, yeah, we, we we our generation is now almost entirely separated from the Second World War generation. They're virtually they're only late nonagenarians, very early centenarians. We won't have that be able to have that personal contact. And that's why it's it's I, w I was privileged to, to meet these men, but also that so many families had kept brilliant archives. They they'd kept letters, wartime log books. Some of the men recorded their memories for the um the, the second world war film archive some of them actually wrote their memoirs but mm. yeah immediate contact is is just about beyond us now yeah now christmas is fast approaching how can people get hold of a copy of your book they can obtain signed copies from alexander fax booksellers we're in canberra but we're online it's readily available via Amazon, where you can buy the um, the ebook, the the hardcover, the paperback, um, or if you prefer Booktopia, it's available there. It's not available generally in bookshops, though they could order it if they wanted to. It's just easier to go to Amazon or Booktopia. Sure. And the book again is Kriegies, the Australian Airman of Stalag Luft Three by Kristen Alexander. It's and a really emotional, deep insight into into the life in captivity of the of these airmen, and it's and it's a brilliant book to read. And thank you so much for your time again. What's next for you? Well, it's actually the sequel. Um, the, the 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 original PhD covered captivity, but also what happened next. What happened next? How the men coped once they came home, and in a lot of cases. They did not cope very well. So the next book is um, the working title is Traumatic Legacies of Captivity, where I'm, we'll be talking about um, psychological damage, PTSD, moral injury, the effects on family and the intergenerational effects. So, you know, talking about pilgrimage, trying to connect with the, with the Kriegi, with the, the Kriegi in their life. So I'm well advanced with that. Um, hopefully not too much longer. Great. So we, we have an opportunity for another couple of podcasts. Kristen, always good to talk. Thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you, David. I've enjoyed it. That's the podcast for today. We're keen to hear your feedback by leaving a review on your podcast app. Your reviews helps new listeners find our podcast. And you can help support this podcast via Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee. The links are on our website and Facebook page and your support helps us with the production of this podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks for your service.